You're listening to Fund Shack. I'm Ross Butler, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Simon Whitney, who's probably the best-known private equity lawyer in Europe. He's currently a senior consultant to Travis Smith, where he spends much of his time advising clients on sustainability. He's been chairman of the BBCA's Legal and Accounting Committee and Invest Europe's Tax Legal and Regulatory Committee. He's a visiting professor in practice in the Law Department of the London School of Economics, where he teaches. And he has a new book out published by Cambridge University Press called Corporate Governance and Responsible Investment in Private Equity. Our conversation was in two parts. Firstly, we look at the new sustainability regulations and what they mean for companies and investors. And then we go on to look at corporate governance itself. Enjoy. Simon, welcome back to Funshack because you are our first repeat guest and richly deserved it is too. You've written a new private equity book on corporate governance. Your day job at the moment, to a large degree, I understand, is advising companies and asset managers on sustainability. And there's been a lot been going on there in the regulatory sphere. I was wondering if you could give us a, an update on what's been happening and why it matters to most people. Yeah, thanks, Ross, and delighted, honoured to be to be back. <laughs> Thank you for asking me. Um, so, yes, you're right. There's a lot going on. Um, I'm I'm a, a senior consultant at Travis Smith uh, now, and I'm working fairly intensively with a number of clients on a whole range of sustainability and ESG topics. That's very much my focus, corporate governance, very much a part of ESG, of course, and probably where I started, where I came into uh, sustainability. But my practice is, is, is much broader than corporate governance now. And in particular, over the last six months, a number of our clients have been working hard to get ready for the implementation of the, I think a really, really important part of the EU's uh, green finance uh, agenda. And um, as everybody probably knows by now, there are kind of two pieces of uh, European legislation uh, that have in some, to some extent already become effective and are becoming effective over the next uh, year, year or two. Uh, which will really have a very significant impact on asset managers uh, across the EU and indeed elsewhere. The, um, the regulations don't just affect EU regulated firms, but they also affect any non-EU regulated firm, which of course now includes UK regulated firms, uh, as well as other international firms that market products into the EU. We're really talking about in, in, in the world I inhabit, the private funds world predominantly, we're, we're really talking about uh, asset managers and financial advisors um, that, as I say, are either directly regulated in the EU, Luxembourg or, or Ireland or, or somewhere else in the EU, uh, or indeed uh, are you know, based in the UK or elsewhere in the world, but are, but are trying to attract uh, EU-based investors into their, into their funds. So there's the SFDR and there's the taxonomy. How do they relate to each other? Well, they're two very closely related pieces of legislation. There's quite a lot of, uh, of, of cross-referencing, particularly in the implementing regulations. So, so, so the SFDR is essentially a regulation that's aimed at asset managers, uh, other financial market participants and advisors uh, who are um, marketing products, uh, in the EU and, and for those uh, managers what's really required is disclosure of their approach to sustainability and, 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 and I mean very broadly there are four levels of, 
uh, of disclosure requirement that apply to asset managers that are caught by that regulation, those, those directly regulated in the EU are most clearly subject to, to, to all of them. And the first is applicable to everyone and it just requires you to make disclosure on your website and in your disclosures to investors of your approach to so-called sustainability risk, which is essentially risks associated with environmental or social issues. So how you as an asset manager think about uh, and take account of sustainability risk when you're making investments you know, or, or in your investment decision-making processes. That's, that's required for everyone. Um, but there's a kind of second level, which is for most private funds managers, um, a, a kind of opt-in requirement. It is, it is mandatory, it will be mandatory from June for uh, some uh, larger uh, asset managers, but for, for most private fund managers, um, they don't meet the threshold to be required to comply and therefore they have a kind of opt-in opportunity. And, and that's a requirement if you opt in to disclose the principal adverse impacts uh, of your investment decisions. And, and that's essentially uh, negative externalities associated with your, uh, with your portfolio. And, um, and that's, as I say, something that firms have been thinking about, looking at and trying to understand what it means for them, what the reporting obligations are if they do opt in and, um, and then making a decision uh, as, to, as to whether or not they want to be in or out. Uh, there, there are two additional layers. I mentioned there were four. Uh, the, the two additional layers are, first, for those funds that actively market themselves on the basis of having some environmental or social characteristic, uh, that's so-called Article 8 funds. And, and then the next level up is Article 9 funds, which are funds that actively market themselves as having sustainable investment as their objective. And um, it, so, so Article 8 is, is sometimes referred to as light green and Article 9 as dark green products. And, and those two different categories of products, you know, if you're in one or other of them, you carry with them additional disclosure obligations. Um, so that's the SFDR. It interlinks with the taxonomy regulation. The taxonomy regulation is actually broader. The taxonomy regulation doesn't only apply to asset managers. It's, it's going to apply more widely across the economy and is essentially a binary classification system. Um, quite, quite, quite a good idea, in, in my view, the idea that you can take any economic activity and you can classify it according to whether or not, and as I say, it's binary, so either it does or it doesn't uh, contribute to an environmental objective. Uh, and if it sort of qualifies uh, for classification as a, uh, as a taxonomy aligned uh, activity, um, then you, know, you, you, you tick that box and you, uh, and you report it as such. So within a corporate, you don't just look at the company as a whole, you look at the activities of that company and you say which of the activities, what proportion of our overall activities are taxonomy aligned, what proportion of our acti activities contribute to an environmental objective. And then if, you've, if, you, if you tick that box, you then have to go on to, to determine whether or not you meet specific criteria laid down by the European Commission uh, in relation to that activity. Uh, so-called technical screening criteria. So, you know, do your carbon emissions if, if you're if you're a fund that's aiming to or a company that's uh, uh, that's aligned on the basis that it's reducing greenhouse gas emissions. You know, do your activities comply with certain uh, 
uh, carbon emission thresholds. And if you can tick that box, then you also have to confirm that you don't do significant harm to any other objective. So in other words, if you're a, you know, if you're a, a solar panel park, um, you know, you, you can't excessively use water to clean the solar panels um, because that would be regarded as, you know, whilst contributing to one objective, doing harm to another. Uh, and so, um, so, so you have to sort of comply with, with both the, the, the contribution and the no harm criteria and also have to make sure you provide certain safeguards in relation to human rights. And if, if you do all of that, if you can confirm that you do all of that, then you know, your activity is taxonomy aligned. And, and, and the reason this links to the sustainable finance disclosure regulation is that some firms, particularly those that are Article 8 or Article 9 products that are, that are promoting environmental characteristics or objectives, will also have to report their, their compliance or their level of compliance with the taxonomy regulation. So what proportion of your portfolio is um, is in is in activities that tick the box um, for being you know for qualifying as as taxonomy aligned activities. So fund managers need to worry about both because they need to worry about the taxonomy from the perspective of their portfolio companies. Yeah, exactly. So 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 they'll need to be able to collect the data from their portfolio companies. Some of their portfolio companies may well be reporting. Uh, you know their, their level of taxonomy compliance, compliance either because they're required to under EU law or, or voluntarily, um, in which case it's a relatively simple task just to look at what your portfolio companies reported and uh, fit, fit that into your kind of calculation for the portfolio as a whole. Um, but obviously in other cases where your portfolio company is not reporting, either because it's too small to be caught by uh, EU rules that require reporting or because um, it's not in the EU at all um, and therefore hasn't got a clue what you're talking about when you ask it whether it's taxonomy aligned. Um, in, in either case obviously you need to be able to collect the data from the portfolio company and be able to do the assessment to see whether it's a taxonomy aligned activity. What proportion of, or maybe that's too specific, do you think this is going to be popular in terms of the optional, the opt-in aspects and the light green I think the, the jury is still out a little bit on this. It's very, very early days. Um, as, as most people know, the, the, the implementing rules haven't been finalised yet. And so the actual detail of the disclosures that's required by managers who opt in or who are Article 8 or Article 9 is not yet clear. It's becoming clearer as consultations get issued and we see what the regulators have in mind. But it's not yet finalised, and therefore, you know, firms don't at this point have a clear idea about what is going to be required if they if they do opt in or if they market products that come within these Article Eight or Article Nine classifications. Um, and so, so firms are kind of at the moment, I think, to a large extent, by no means all, but to a large extent, in the private funds world. Um, I think there's a there's a kind of wait and see approach a kind of let's let's have a look at the final rules before we decide whether we want to opt into compliance with them or whether we can opt into compliance with them whether we have the um you know the data that we need in order to be able to do the reporting that's required of us um and in some cases that reporting is pretty demanding and, and quite difficult for firms to do and arguably not particularly helpful for investors to receive. I mean, reporting is valuable if, if somebody is going to act on the basis of it, right? I mean, uh, there's not a lot of point in asking firms to do a lot of reporting unless it's leading uh, somewhere, unless it's, unless it's um, 
uh, unless it's going to to make a difference to someone who, who is uh, looking at that reporting, either the reporting firm, because obviously sometimes the obligation to report on something does cause you to focus uh, a bit more on it um, or, or on the person receiving the reports. Um, so it's, it's not entirely clear uh, what the rules will be uh, and whether or not they will be requirements that, um, that actually help um, you know, to, to, to achieve the policy objectives that have, that have been set. Um, and we're some way, I think, away from from knowing um, that um, even even now, as we speak, um, you know, at the end of March, um, some weeks after the the first set of rules were effective. Uh, I say the jury's out because I mean I'm very optimistic about these kinds of regulatory interventions. I, I'm generally speaking. Um, aligned with the, and we at, Tra we at Travis Smith very much aligned with the policy objectives of helping to finance the green transition and helping to make sure that uh, uh, that asset managers and underlying uh, companies are focused both on environmental and on social issues uh, in their activities. And so I don't think there's any argument with the, the, the requirement to have some regulatory intervention to encourage or, or, or even force um, that, that, that change in the market. I think that um, if I'm in the private funds world though, which I am, and I think about the types of investors that are investing in my product, these are generally speaking, highly sophisticated professional investors who for the most part ought to be capable of deciding what data is relevant and interesting to them, what data is going to affect their decision-making, what it is they want need to report on uh, and, um, and and how they want that that reporting to be done and um, you know whilst you don't want a proliferation of standards whilst you don't want every investor wanting different information you know on the other hand you know I would be as an investor less interested in whether my fund ticked a box to say it was article 8 or to say that it did report according to principal adverse impact indicators and much more interested in due diligence seeing exactly what it was doing and, and, and asking you know, for specific information that I thought was important and, and that I thought should be a focus for the fund manager to be reported to me um, you know, in a format that I found useful as an investor. And the problem I think with regulatory interventions sometimes, and I think this is a challenge for regulators, I don't think it's an easy answer, but the challenge for regulatory interventions, and I think one that the regulators you know, will be grappling with at the moment is, is how you make sure uh, that um, you know the, the the regulations that you that, that that you provide, and in particular the template disclosures that you uh, require firms to comply with, you know, are providing useful, relevant data that actually is helpful to investors in and and out and others. Because let's, let's be clear, this data is not only going to investors; it's going it's going to be publicly available for the for, for the most part. So mm. the data that's going out there is actually data that's um that's helpful and, and relevant and meaningful and you know for example if i was an investor i'd be as interested in forward-looking disclosures as i would be in backward-looking disclosures mm. and and i think there's a there's a there's a risk there's a tendency that at least some of what's uh, what's what's happening is is looking a bit too 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 much backwards and not enough forwards mm. so I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic uh, about the potential for these regulations. I think the taxonomy in principle is a great idea. Hard to pull off, of course. Binary classification system is 
brilliantly simple and clear and allows investors to have a look and and and, and see uh, what 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 level of activity is is aligned with policy objectives and and what the you know what what what, what the progression over time is in relation to the reporting of a particular business or a particular asset manager it's very clear but i mean very difficult to decide where you're going to draw the line um and how you're going to define those those lines you know certainly for for, for environmental activities but even more so for social activities you know and there's a there's a plan to produce a social taxonomy but it's going to be challenging um but you know if they can pull it off, if they can achieve something that gets, um, you know, consensus support, then I think that could be quite a powerful tool. Mm, that's a that's a big if. I mean, I, I agree with you that the principle sounds great. I've long been a an ESG skeptic, but one of my core problems with it is that it's been private sector led initiative. It's effectively been political campaigning by people in positions of unaccountable power, and so just. By doing this, the EU has solved that to some degree, and that that's part of the point, isn't it? It's that you're, you're trying to avoid greenwashing, for example. Um, but but there's you know it's one thing saying that's what we're intending to do, and it's a very another thing pulling it off when you when you introduce top-down rules. Very often, you can make things even worse. <laughs> yes, and and also I think you have to accept that different parts of the market might have different needs. So, so whilst you know, if you're a small shareholder um, whose only real decision is buy or sell, um, you know, in a large listed company, or if you're a retail investor, you know, in a kind of usage fund that, you know, again, you really don't have the opportunity to to ring up the fund manager and say we don't like what you're doing here. Can you do it differently? Or we don't like the reporting we're getting. Can we have different reporting? You know, that 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 might well, you know offer a, a clear and compelling case for, for for clear regulatory intervention and comparability um you know to solve what i suppose might be a, a, a market failure or at least a, a failure of the market to produce the data that, that that the consumers of that data would find helpful um but you know not every part of the market operates like that and um in in the private funds world um we've got investors who are very focused on these issues have been for for some time and increasingly so and are able to do very significant due diligence and, and have you know proper conversations with fund managers about the direction of travel um you know those fund managers have to come back to the market every few years and raise more capital and they've got to look those investors in the eye and explain their record and their plans um the progression of their of their approach to sustainability and and indeed everything else and um and and so you know you question whether or not the same kinds of regulatory intervention are really needed in that in that in that market mm. and the, the other thing that i that concerns me is um is it a blunt instrument with regards to the energy transition because the implication of all of this is that it's going to affect companies access to capital and so on but the what the companies that really need access to capital are you know say the oil majors that are desperately trying to transition towards a low carbon economy and so i wonder how they'll be affected in all of this yeah well that's kind of outside of my area of uh, expertise so I, I i wonder too but i don't have uh, i don't have a particular view but of course that is one of the criticisms that people have been laying at, 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 at the taxonomy um, but i mean to be fair the um 
the, the, the taxonomy itself does, does try to accommodate that concern. Um, it does have a category, for example, of, um, you know, a tradi tra transitional activity. Right. Um, you know, so you can be a taxonomy compliant cement manufacturer um, because you know, we need cement. And um, even though, you know, yeah. e even though we wish we didn't for environmental reasons, we, we do. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, the taxonomy lays down what criteria you need to meet if you want to be a taxonomy compliant cement manufacturer. And if effectively, you need you need to you, you need to make sure that your processes are as efficient as you know best in class, as it were, as efficient as they can be. Um, so they're not ruling out activities. Well, they are ruling out some, but they're not ruling out all activities which they regard as uh, as as important uh, for, yeah. for, for, for 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 society. Um, just because they create environmental uh, harm, they are saying that. Um, we recognise that there, there needs to be a transition, and and therefore, um, you know, some activities, um, you know, can can be, uh, you know, can be taxonomy compliant as as long as they're doing as well as they can to minimise their environmental harm. And that's important, I think. I was pleased to see that human rights made it into this. Does it sit quite oddly though? Because I never considered human rights to be a sustainability issue. Does it fit well within the taxonomy and so on? Well, it, it fits well in, in the sense that it's quite clear, I think, to most people that um, in, in order to be a taxonomy compliant activity, it, it, it wouldn't make sense to allow people to tick the box and yet find that they weren't complying with you know, basic norms in relation to human rights. So, you know, clearly you don't want people to be saying we're selling our product on the basis that it's going to have you know it's going to include only or predominantly taxonomy compliant activities and to miss the opportunity to identify that some of those activities are, are environmentally helpful but significantly harmful to the human rights of, 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 of individuals and so I think it makes perfect sense to have some Human rights safeguards built into the taxonomy, and and indeed, you know the sustainable finance disclosure regulation, which focuses on negative externalities. You know to the extent the extent to which you are uh, harming uh, individual human rights, you know clearly is a negative externality that ought to be reported upon in in some way uh, of a particular activity, and indeed. Um, you know, human rights reporting is not new. Um, for example, in the UK, we've had the Modern Slavery Act for some years and companies, most companies are required to report on what they do in order to ensure that at least in their own supply chain, not just in their own business, of course, but in their own supply chain, um, there, are, there are not, you know, there's, there's not forced labour or, um, or human trafficking uh, going on. And so, you know, that to me makes perfect sense. And um, and indeed, I think it would be a big omission, you know, not to include in the def in your definition of sustainability, because um, to me, sustainability does include you know a wide range of issues that are associated with the way in which you operate your business and and the effect that that has on, if you like, people and planet. Uh, and um, and to me, the term sustainability, at least the way I think it's used uh, now, it does imply 
um, that you are focused not just on problems of people, but problems of, uh, sorry, not just problems of planet, but problems of people as well. Uh, and so to me, that 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 makes sense. I, I think, you know, what, what I think will be interesting is how the expert technical group, the technical expert group, the, the group that's putting together the taxonomy and advising the commission on it, how that group comes up with some, um, you know, with some approach that allows you to classify an activity in the same binary way by reference to its approach to human rights. One can see that kind of science-based uh, thresholds for environmental activity, you know, how much water you use per, um, you know, ton of electricity you generate or, or how, much, um, you know, how much your carbon emissions are, what your carbon intensity is, what your carbon footprint is, those kinds of things you can kind of see they might be controversial about where you draw the line, but you can see that they kind of lend themselves to drawing a line somewhere. I think social activity is going to be much more challenging um, to try and, you know, to, to, to try and go beyond just kind of minimum safeguards and work out, you know, what's making a positive contribution to the achievement of, an, of, of, a, of a social objective. Um, but, you know, uh, again, that doesn't, just because it's difficult doesn't mean say it's not worth doing or, 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 or attempting. And, um, I know the technical expert group is working. The European Commission had a webinar on this uh, a few weeks ago. There's progress being made, you know, on the development of a social taxonomy, and I will watch with great interest to see uh, how that develops. Yeah, I, I kind of think that when you're dealing with something complex, you really need the, your conceptual foundation to be really solid. And I just, I can see, I see what you mean that sustainability is, you know. It's kind of all things to all men these days, but I don't think human rights really is a sustainability issue because you can make, you know, you can make a lot of money indefinitely by treating people terribly and many countries do. And I, and I just worry that the, um, the private sector's conception of ESG is a purely risk return based concept. You know, this all comes down to financial return. It's just the time horizon over which you look at it has now migrated into regulation um, and there's no there's no as far as i can tell moral component the human rights aspect and you can kind of see that it might work the risk return thing on climate just about although you could argue why you know why isn't the market accounting for that but i don't see at all how um and also i think it's quite immoral to talk about um social things in terms of financial risk return I, I saw there's a uk government consultation to pension fund trustees um, that just went out a couple of days ago and they couch it in precisely those terms terms talking about you know investment opportunities around you know social action it's like well it shouldn't, shouldn't be an investment opportunity i mean it can be as well but if it is the market will deal with that it's, uh, it's, it's ethical that's that's for me the barrier between private and, and public um, but it seems to me that the public sector and the policymakers have just adopted the language of the private sector. Well, I think I have a different view. Um, I think that, um, I mean, first of all, it's clearly the case that where there are significant harms being done, wh whether they be in environmental harms, and climate change is obviously only one aspect of environmental harm, but whether they be environmental harms um, or, or, or whether they be harms to, to people, whether they be harms to human rights 
whether they be harms to other social issues, um, then um, it's clearly right, at least to me, that governments, policymakers step in and, and, and sort of simply ban those activities. I mean, we just do not allow people to pollute rivers. We just do not allow, um, you know, people to, you know, to allow their, their, their workers to operate in unsafe environments. I mean, that's just, that's just something that we, we have to outlaw. And I, I think that, I certainly don't think that regulators, governments should be allowed to dodge their responsibility for, for doing that, for simply making things illegal and then enforcing the law properly. And, and, and I think that, you know, that there may be a risk, and this is an interesting debate within the corporate governance world, which I, you know, which we might come on to corporate governance more specifically, but, you know, I very much, um, I, 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 I very much believe that if people think corporate governance reform, you know, lets the government off the hook in any way for taking uh, action in relation to activities that they think are just harmful, uh, then I think that the corporate governance reform could actually be counterproductive um, because we just need to tell companies, businesses, that they can't do certain things. And if they do, they'll feel the full force of the law um, uh, on them. However, yeah, well, I, but I agree with you, Simon. I think that's the, that's the point yeah. I'm making. And I'm agreeing the, the, with you to that. I'm agreeing with you to that oh, okay, extent. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So I'm I'm trying to get at my point of agreement out first. <laughs> but I think that it, but I think that you can sort of believe that and still go on to argue, as I would, that nevertheless we also have to make sure that businesses uh, are given the right incentives to tackle uh, those challenges in a positive way. And so as well as the government saying there are certain things we just can't allow businesses to do, there is also a role for a government in asking uh, companies to, um, to, 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 to step up to the challenges of people and planet and to actually make a, a positive difference. And to say that that creates investment opportunity, I think is just manifestly true. And to do anything as a government that you can to, uh, to, to, to increase the opportunity available to businesses that rise to the challenge, I think is, is, is helpful. And so, you know, if, if um, there are opportunities to generate technologies that, you know, solve the problems of climate change or solve problems of biodiversity or indeed, um, you know, investment activities that reduce inequality in communities for example then i think it makes perfect sense for the government to both accentuate those opportunities perhaps by providing you know tax incentives or or or, or, or other things uh, or, or perhaps um to make them more attractive to investors who want to invest in those activities for example by requiring businesses to disclose more clearly you know what they're doing and to hold them to the disclosures that they're making um more strictly so so that you can't you know raise capital from investors who want to do socially advantageous things um by saying you're, do, you're going to do socially advantageous things and then not delivering so holding holding companies and asset managers to promises they make to investors makes perfect sense to me and and and, and that would i think then you know accentuate the opportunity for companies who want to actually achieve really positive benefits to society um, 
it gives gives them the opportunity to to do that and to make money at the same time that's a pretty good segue into your book corporate governance and responsible investment in private equity um which i very much enjoyed and here it is um my feeling from reading it and from you know knowing you is that you're not a natural interventionist and uh certainly the first part of the book I, uh, felt to me like an argument for be for taking great caution in state intervention into private company or, or company uh, governance issues yes that's being fair yes i think that's fair i mean i'm i'm i think that um it, you know my view is that in order to intervene um that you have to have established a a, a kind of clear market failure uh, and you have to have convinced yourself that regulatory intervention can do better than the market so not only do you have to show the market isn't doing what it should do you also have to show that the regulatory intervention could actually improve on that position um you know because often i think regulatory interventions you know are are, are justified by the fact that there's a failure of the market to address an issue but actually make the problem worse yeah, yeah. Um, by intervening so the market doesn't do it perfectly but the regulators do it even even more imperfectly than the market was doing it so i think you you have to you have to persuade yourselves that there is a case for intervention in those terms if, before before you know it's 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 appropriate for governments for regulators to intervene um, and um, and 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 you know i think often regulation is clearly required and necessary and in those cases i absolutely think government needs to step up to the plate and do what it needs to do but i think that in private equity corporate governance being coming back specifically to the to the topic of the book yeah it's it's very unclear to me what 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 intervention can really achieve and and what it you know what it has already achieved um you know the uk has got some mandatory corporate law rules which i talk about a lot in the book you know i don't think that they're particularly useful or helpful um in in private companies um i don't think many people really do think they're particularly useful or helpful in private companies so you know that then leads you to one of two conclusions you know either we toughen them so that they are more useful or we get rid of them um and um you know and, and that's where the kind of book that's what kind of where, where the book um, starts its discussion. Well, rather than kind of seek to give a sweeping overview of the book, people should just buy it and read it. Um, I wanted to just talk about a few things that um, interested and amused me because it's my podcast. So if it's okay with you. So I've got a couple of things. Um, I just want to read this sentence or two because uh, I kind of almost laughed out loud when I read it and I did wonder if you wrote it with a smile it says these incentives to behave responsibly or at least to be seen to be doing so which I guess is a, an important distinction could lead to agency costs for the other shareholders who may find that private equity-backed companies overinvest in processes that are designed to protect one investor's own reputation or to create a defense against liability for for the shareholder um the reason it amused me, of course, is is because well, there's there's so much controversy about private equity firms investing in care homes and hospitals and so on, and here you are arguing uh, from a kind of conceptual principles basis, precisely the opposite that um, private equity firms, because they are 
not one-shot investors, and you, you refer to game theory, they're actually more likely to spend much more time being seen to do the right thing, even to the extent that it would make it uneconomic from the perspective of most other kinds of shareholders. I mean, I don't put too much store by this. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, it's, as you say, theoretical rather than based on any kind of empirical evidence that I've, that I've gathered. Although there is empirical evidence that I think would support the, 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 the idea. Just to, just to stand back and explain it for, for a moment, if I may. So, mm. you know, the, the, the ba- one of the basic kind of arguments in the book is that if and to the extent that um, sustainability is either now or likely to be in the reasonably foreseeable future and an economic issue, then private equity investors have both the incentives and the ability to respond positively to that issue. So I argue that if I buy a company today as a private equity firm, then I'm going to be selling that business in, let's say, five years time, might be three, might be seven. I don't know when I buy it precisely. So I have to have some kind of time horizon in mind. But I do have a time horizon in mind. I I buy a company with a view to exit. That's the nature of the industry. And so what I'm thinking about is whether or not a buyer of that asset in five years time, a sophisticated buyer, because most likely, not necessarily, but most likely, I will be selling to a sophisticated buyer, someone who's going to do a lot of due diligence and who understands the impact of that due diligence, you know, on the future of the business. So I'm going to be selling to someone in five years who's sophisticated, who's able to really get underneath the bonnet of this business and understand what its drivers are. And what they're going to be interested in is what's going to drive value in that business going forward for the next five years or or, or longer. And so what I'm thinking about now when I buy a business is is, is what is going to matter to that buyer in five years' time. And and are sustainability issues, are there there sustainability issues which are likely to affect the willingness of that buyer to buy the business and the price that they'll pay for that business? Because that's what incentivizes me. That's what drives me. Is, is how much I'm gonna realize for that investment in five years time. And that, that's the way I approach the governance of this business. I'm going to work out how to best govern this business, who's be, how best this business should be developed over the course of my ownership in order to achieve that, um, you know, that increase in value when I exit. And that's, you know, that's one of my incentives. It may not be my only incentive, but it's one of my incentives and probably a, a pretty powerful one as a private equity investor. And so to the extent that I look at this business and I think, yes, there are issues here that that could affect either upside value or downside risk, which are likely at some point to affect the willingness of that buyer to buy my business, then I'm going to focus on it. And that means that if I've got a business that's heavily reliant on carbon emissions, for example, I'm going to pretty quickly realize that in five years time, I'm going to benefit from spending some time working out how to change the business model of this business so that it's you know it's not so reliant on carbon emissions that its carbon footprint is reduced that it that it transitions into an activity which um is more if you like sustainable um but similarly if my supply chain has potentially got some human rights violations going on and I think a buyer is going to care about that or or there's a risk that sometime between now and when I sell the business 
that's going to harm my reputation or going to result in some uh, regulatory intervention. And again, I'm going to focus on that. So, so that seems to me pretty clear and unarguable that you know private equity firms have both the incentives and the ability uh, through through the governance mechanisms that they're able to put in place to respond to those sustainability issues where they have economic impact. But what I what I go on to, and of course you don't know exactly what's going to have economic impact in five years' time, and the world is changing, and so you, you have to be you have to think about the, those issues with a relatively um, kind of broad um uh, uh, an open mind but 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 what i go on to say and this is the point you're picking up is that um at, at the same time i don't just have the incentive to focus on value creation in my underlying portfolio company as a private equity firm i have, I have other considerations too which you know which go beyond the incentive to make sure that business responds uh, and which if you like magnify my incentives um to, to, to behave in a way that is regarded as quotes responsible and, and those would apply for example if my own investors care about my record on sustainability so if my own investors are asking me what the carbon footprint is of my portfolio and I know that they're going to look at the information that I provide to them on an annual basis and care about the transition um, of my portfolio uh, in that regard um, or if they're likely to get upset if it turns out that one of my portfolio companies is involved in some kind of human rights abuse, then I, I may well care about that even more than I would care about it just for the sake of the economic development of the underlying business. Because I, if something goes wrong, if the carbon intensity of that business doesn't reduce, if, uh, if there is a human rights violation, then I don't only suffer the economic damage that's associated with that in the underlying portfolio company, but I also mm. suffer the damage that accrues to me if, for example, I find it more difficult to raise my next fund in three years' time. And so what I'm really, all I'm really arguing, I think it's fairly, um, it's fairly hard to argue against, it seems to me, is that if I'm a private equity firm and I think that my investors care or indeed other outsiders care, um, in a way that affects me financially, if, if I think outsiders care in a way that affects me financially, then I have a clear economic incentive to, quote, over-invest in systems that will prevent or, or, or protect me from those, um, you know, from those financial impacts. And, and, and as I say, whilst my book is, in that regard, at least theoretical, um, there's quite a lot of empirical research that would support that line of argument. We, we all know that there's also examples uh, and even some research in some sectors that doesn't support that idea but you know there's plenty of research that does show um you know that um that private equity is a more responsible investor than certain other um you know types of uh, of ownership paradigm um so well that's one of the things i liked about your book actually was that it it didn't rely on, it doesn't rely so much on empirical evidence, because I think that that's, you can just go round and round in circles, you can, you can get the facts to fit whatever argument you want. And I think in a, in a complex topic, like talking generically about a corporate ownership structure, you're on much firmer ground by starting from a first principles, logical analysis of what are people incentivized to do and how and to behave like. And so I think that, yes, it's very, it, I agree, it's very hard to argue against. Uh, um, okay, I've got something else as well, which is completely different. Um, 
So earlier, you, you've come across a really nice little uh, quotation. I think it's probably quite old. Uh, and it's these academics that are talking about, um, they're explaining the corporation in its early form. And they wrote, um, the managers of these corporations were strictly accountable and were in a position to be governed in all matters of general policy by their owners. They occupied, in fact, a position analogous to the captain and officers of a ship at sea. In navigation, their autonomy might be supreme, but the direction of the voyage, the alteration of the vessel, the character of the cargo and the distribution of the profit and losses were settled ahead of time and altered only by the persons having the underlying property interest. I thought that was a beautiful bit of writing actually um but so interesting as well because people tend to think of private equity as like newfangled yes. and and yet in many respects it, it it seems to be like the older version of ownership and that you could argue that a public company with a million shareholders is actually the novelty yes exactly well one of the things i talk about in that section of the book is how um you know this kind of idea of separation of ownership and control which is you know at the heart of what academics think about when they're worrying about the uh, the corporate governance mechanisms in in public companies in, in widely held companies in, in companies where you know the shareholders don't have the control um they don't have the uh, in, indeed even the economic incentives um, to really inform themselves and get involved in uh, the activities of the company, even you know to some extent strategic activities of the company, um, you know that that's that's a problem that that, that doesn't really exist in private equity. It it, it, it does it, it it there is as I say in the book and as everybody knows a separation of ownership and control in private equity because on the whole private equity firms do not operate businesses uh, they they have a management team that does that and you know day to day lots of decision making is done by that management team and and therefore the control of the business at least on a day to day basis isn't isn't within the the private equity firms um uh, gift but uh, but but nevertheless there is an economic incentive a really clear and direct one uh, uh, for them to take care about what those managers are doing and to get involved in the strategy of the business and as you say in many ways it kind of fits the description that was that you just read out um which which is you know an efficient one because you've got the you've got the quotes owners of a business and it's not not, not i don't think it's right to talk about shareholders as owners of businesses anymore but um you, you've got the shareholders of the business you know with um you know very significant um uh, control or, 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 or voting rights and um, you know those shareholders you know do indeed have all of the incentives to make sure that those who are in control on a day-to-day -day basis are doing it in the way that they want them to do it and so the idea is that the agency costs of that arrangement the, the kind of um, uh, the misalignment between uh, the, the, the managers and the shareholders is significantly reduced. Yeah, it's a beautiful structure. It's why it fascinates me. It's simple and yet it works in such complex environments and amid so much uncertainty. Um, and so most much corporate governance academic work does focus on that agency problem and it, and it typically comes from the perspective of public companies. But because private equity can solve for that problem to a large degree, 
um, corporate governance can then go a step beyond that and become a, an enabling factor with regards to actually creating value. And you've got a whole section in your book on the power of corporate governance to facilitate better decision making. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. And, and, I, and I, again, I don't want to suggest that I think that this is confined to private equity. I think private equity does it very well on the whole, but I, I'm sure many other organizations, whether they be, you know, commercial companies or universities or charities, you know, also have effective decision-making processes. What I argue in the book is that a big part of what the corporate governance arrangements in a private equity-backed company are aiming to do is indeed to improve decision-making, to put in place a sort of preordained and flexible decision-making process that is designed to make sure that the decisions of the company are as good as they possibly can be. And that's a very efficient and effective thing. And, and, and as I say, all, all organisations try to put in place decision-making processes that lead to good decisions. It's pretty self-evident that that's a, a critical success factor for, for most organisations, commercial and non-commercial. But I, I think what I'm saying in the book is that um, if you if you take apart the corporate governance mechanisms in private equity, you you quickly discover that actually a big part of what they're designed to do is not what an academic would see corporate governance mechanisms as being about, which is oversight, which is you know checking on the management and making sure that things are going in the way that you want them to go. Um, but a big part of what the corporate governance mechanism is doing is making sure that there are a relatively small number of people around the table, that those people have as much information as possible, uh, both about the business and the sector the business is operating in and the general economic environment, that they come from a range of different, have a range of different perspectives, but there's not so many of them that they can never reach a decision. Uh, and that when a particular decision comes up, they can meet quickly uh, and, they can make a, and they can make a decision and they can make sure that a proper process is followed in order to, make that decision as good as it can be now you know business is always operating in conditions of uncertainty and nobody knows whether a decision is going to be the right decision or not and some decisions are obviously more important than others but the corporate governance mechanisms kind of kind of respond to that uncertainty by saying okay certain decisions can just be made by management on a day-to-day -day basis others have to come to the full board but if they come to the full board here's the process we want to follow and here's the people we want to have around the table um, to make to make that decision, and um, and because they're repeat players, because this is what they do for a living, private equity firms just happen to be very good, I think, mm. at putting in place these kind of processes that you know don't always lead to the right decisions, obviously, but are more likely to lead to the right decisions, you know, than 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 if they put in place a, a, a process that, that hadn't you know, got 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 um, hadn't given much thought to and hadn't got the same level of experience in. In designing, um, so I just think it, it it works quite well as a model to make sure that the decision making processes are appropriate. That's not all the corporate governance system is doing, of course. And I talk about other things in the book that I think the corporate governance system is there to do. But you know, one of them is to is to make sure that the decision making process is efficient and effective. And in some cases, that means speeding up decisions. It means being able to convene at very short notice because you've got a relatively small number of people who are incentivized to you know, focused on making sure that this business is going to do well and is going to make a good decision. And sometimes if good decisions need to be made, if a decision needs to be made quickly, 
um, then being able to make the decision quickly that that that's important and so in some businesses you know that's really what you need is a sort of is a quick decision making process but 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 where the decision making process doesn't necessarily lose quality as a result of being quick because you've got people who are completely up to speed and you know don't don't don't, don't and and have um have the right incentives to make sure that they're fully informed about uh, about the decision before they make it but then in some cases it means slowing the decision down it means putting checks and balances in place you know often in my research people talk to me about how when they were buying entrepreneur-led businesses a large part of what they were doing was was adding process to um to decision making and, and so you know a, a brilliant brilliant entrepreneur who was really at the heart of driving this business forward was nevertheless subject to some control, some restraint in order to make sure that the bets they were making were not too big um, or, you know, the way in which they were allocating company resources was not spreading them too thinly or, or, or whatever it might be. Mm. So effectively slowing down decision-making or putting some process around decision-making for some businesses, that was the, you know, that, that, that was an important purpose of the corporate governance mechanism. I've never so, thought of that before, but if you, if you take the private equity spectrum from venture capital all the way to big buyouts, you could see it as a, a, a situation where the big buyout guys are trying to inject some entrepreneurial dynamism into large organizations and the venture guys are trying to inject some institutional, you know, bureaucracy into entrepreneurial situations exactly. and, and they both work. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so I think for me, what private equity firms do well is they look at a business and they say, what sort of corporate governance structure in this business is going to make sense for this business, given its market, given our strategy for the business, given, you know, the management, who they are, what their expertise is, you know, given all of the variables that we see in front of us, you know, what do we want to do in order to make sure the decision making process is as as good as we think it can be and, and I think they're good at doing that uh, and that's part in my view of the reason for their for their success. Well I agree with you that kind of analysis to me sounds like the core reason for private equity success and yet it's it's so rare to hear that kind of you know people talk about leverage and they talk about you know buying well or whatever it is people hardly ever talk about corporate governance and uh, so I mean did you find it surprising when you decided to write this book that i mean maybe there are lots of books out there on private equity corporate governance and i don't know about them but i don't think there are no there aren't um many and um i think part, partly it is because some people have different views about what the term corporate governance really means so when i started the research for my book it was actually quite disheartening because i would sort of talk to experienced private equity practitioners and say i'm going to write a book about corporate governance in private equity and they'd say well that'd be a very short book because um, <laughs> There, there really isn't any and um and, and of course um that, that in the way i'm defining corporate governance which as i say in the book is you know kind of the accepted um definition that the uk regulators uh, use and is really about the, the way in which decision make you know, decision making uh is organized um and is therefore quite a broad definition of corporate governance if you like um, of course, there's lots and lots of corporate governance in private equity-backed companies. Those people, if, if you know, if they thought about it for ten minutes, uh, even for two minutes, would have realised that you know, and did realise that what I was talking about was very much a big part of what the private equity model is. Um, but if you think about corporate governance in a kind of you know box-ticking type terms, you know, 
compliance with the corporate governance code or you know, mm. thinking about reporting on corporate governance. Well, there's more of that now than there used to be, much more. But certainly when I started my research, um, you know, that, that that was just a private matter to be organised between the managers and the and the firm. And it wasn't something that people thought of as corporate governance in, in, in those kind of, in, in those terms. Um, yeah, it's so central to what private equity people do. They probably thought about it. They couldn't even see it. You know, well, some, right some, against... some of the same people, when we talked about it and when I explained what I meant by corporate governance, you know, came to the conclusion that private equity is basically a corporate governance model. Yeah. <laughs> so from there being none, you know, you can quite quickly persuade yourself that it's basically everything um, yeah. that, that private equity is about. I mean, obviously, there are, there are other things, too, but it's certainly at the centre of what uh, of, of what a successful private equity firm is trying to do. So to give a, a practical example of that, something else that jumped out at me was, and this is kind of quite UK specific, but, that, but that's fine, is around the duty of loyalty. And when you uh, discuss the, the duties of, so say you've got like a private equity investment director and they put on the board of a portfolio company, given the letter of the law, they've got to act in the interests of that company and not they're not there as the, the patsy for the, the private equity firm. Uh, and and yet, obviously, they're only there by virtue of the fact that they're an employee of, you know, and and uh, and and I think you say at some point that you could contract that away, but no one ever bothers. And perhaps that's just because in practice there's alignment. But but it's it's an interesting and and fundamental point because if you're an investment director in a private equity firm, that's that's real personal liability and duty that you're taking on, and there is a potential conflict there. And I think most people recognise that. They recognise that there that there is real personal responsibility, even potential liability. Although, as I discuss in the book, liability risks, at least if the company is solvent, are uh, pretty remote. But nevertheless, they they're there. And certainly, personal responsibility uh, as a director of the company, sitting around the board table, you know, with the other directors, all owing fiduciary responsibility in the UK to, you know, promote the success of the company. Um, you know, there, 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 is a, there is a responsibility. And in my experience, people understand that and they take it seriously. Um, and, um, and, and if you ask them about potential conflicts of interest, most private equity people told me during my research that, um, uh, that, that, that you know, there isn't really a conflict, that you know, what they want for the business um, as a shareholder in the business is to, make that company as successful as it can be and that's that's obviously alignment of interest not conflict of interest um there are of course potential moments of conflict but um but but particularly when a company is sort of heading for some financial difficulty um you know those those conflicts are often usually i would say recognized and and dealt with appropriately so so there is a tension in the law between a corporate for a corporate governance mechanism which both seeks to make good decisions for the business but at the same time has some role to play in defending the interests of a particular shareholder that there is some tension in the law between those things and i think it's not particularly helpful that there's that tension there but um but in in practice as i discuss in the book and for reasons i describe in the book it's not really a problem. It's not really something that causes too much difficulty. Well, we could go on and on, but I think people should just uh, buy the book and read it for themselves. Um, it's been a great 
pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for the updates on sustainability and corporate governance. And uh, I hope you can come on to Fun Check for a third time at some point. I certainly hope so. It's always it's always good to chat with you, Ross. So thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.